You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Wendy Suzuki is an award-winning professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University and co-founder of BrainBody, an AI-based health tech company. She's the author of Healthy Brain, Happy Life, which is made into a PBS series. Our new book is Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Thank you for joining me, Wendy. Such a pleasure to be here, Rick. You know... There's a lot of anxiety around today, and I think that this book is so such a great look at the power of that we can derive from uh, harnessing this. What led you to to perceive anxiety as a good emotion in the first place? Well, so this started even before the pandemic. I was noticing increasing levels of anxiety in my students, in my colleagues, in myself. And I knew this was a topic I wanted to uh, explore. And so wrote the first draft of Good Anxiety before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and anxiety levels really went through the roof. But uh, kind of in the middle of all of that, uh, I went through a a very difficult kind of uh, emotional situation on my own. So as I was struggling with how do you address the difficult emotions of anxiety, um, there was very sadly a, a... you know, tragedy in my own family. I, I lost my father and my younger brother within three months of each other. And uh, then struggled with probably the most difficult emotion, which is grief. And I felt like I was kind of having this master class of the, the, the most difficult emotions that humans have. And I came out of that realizing that um, with great pain of grief comes great wisdom and great insight. And I thought, well, if I get that insight and wisdom of gratitude and how lucky I am to be here and how lucky I am to have the rest of the family that are still with me, what can I pull out of the difficult emotions of anxiety? Let me step back to anxiety. And at that point, anxiety was the better of the two emotions. I'd rather have anxiety than grief. And so I was on a mission to pull out what good can come from anxiety? And that is where the gifts or the superpowers of anxiety that I think is kind of the secret sauce of this book. That's where it came from. You use the words step back. That's a really important key to, I think, this entire book. Talk about the, the process of, A, understanding what anxiety is, and then B, uh, analyzing it within yourself and stepping back from it within yourself. You, uh, one of the things I like about this book is that you do a lot of, you use yourself as an example. And I think <laughs> yes, I do. you're a major character in this book. So just talk about writing a book that's about science, but also about you, Wendy Suzuki. Yeah. So this, um, uh, has become my MO in book writing. So my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, was really a science memoir about my discovery of the fascination of the effects of exercise on the brain as a neuroscientist. But it also was a, you know, it was a, um, a, a memoir about how I did a very difficult thing of switching my whole research program as a full professor from memory to the effects of exercise. And it turns out that I, I like this form of, of writing. And so um, my inspiration is, I want to teach people about the power of neuroscience for living their lives, understanding their lives, improving their lives. And so I wanted to apply that to anxiety. That was the first premise. Okay, great, I could do that, right? And, uh, but one of the things I discovered Um, that may not come out so clearly in the book is that at the beginning of the process, I realized that I was an anxiety denier. It's like, yeah, I have some anxiety, a little bit of anxiety, but not so much. 
And as I got into the book and started writing about it, it's like, oh my God, I have so much anxiety. I never even, you know, admitted it to myself, a total anxiety denier. And so, so maybe some people can, can relate to that, but it made it, it made it better for me to make these kind of true personal discoveries about anxiety, about my own relationship with anxiety. And as I do talk about in the book about um, realizing that I was making friends with my own anxiety because I was focused on what good can come out of it and not not treating it as so many people do. It's it's natural. Treat it like this just weight around your neck that you just want to throw out the front door and never see again. Of course, I had that same feeling. But as I started to get into it and realize how much anxiety permeated my life and coming off this experience of that our negative emotions, uh, even the worst ones, can provide great wisdom. It gave me a brand new insight into my own anxiety, and that's what I ended up work, um, writing about. You know, one of the things I, I really like about this book is the emphasis on story. You use your story, the story yeah. of, of you know many of your your patients and your students, and and so I'd like you to talk this podcast is called narrative species because mm. humans are a narrative species if i ask yeah. you who you are you will tell me a story yes. and you use the power of story really well in oh, this book you. to demonstrate um what might be otherwise abstract and hard to understand uh science especially when yeah. you're talking about this neuroscience because it's not like you can just point to your hand and say well if you would do these exercises with your hand your hand will get stronger you can't just point to you do show pictures of the brain and say this is where stuff is happening but yeah. it, the the stories are really important in here yeah absolutely and that has been my biggest lesson as a teacher as a neuroscientist as a writer to um, learn myself the power of story and how to use it and kind of to unlearn the bad habits of uh, professorship <laughs> of, of, you know, facts and, and tables and, and you know, uh, um, uh, the dryness of it sometimes and to make it real. That's when it really comes to life. And I, I guess I think I, I learned that because it came to life for me in my first book, when there's a reason why I got interested in exercise in the brain, I'd gained 25 pounds. I was miserable. I was trying to get tenure and stressing myself out and saying, okay, the, the way I'm going to do it is I'm just going to work and not do anything else. And I'm going to eat a lot of takeout because I don't have time to cook. And guess what? I, I gained 25 pounds. And so that process of, of losing the weight um, led me to regular exercise and led me to, to observe exactly what that did for my brain. I was like, my brain is working better. What is going on here? I'm a neuroscientist. I could understand that. And so, um, or I can try and start to study that. And it turned out to be such a fascinating thing. Um, and I applied that same approach to anxiety and um, doing studies in my lab that asked the very, very practical question, for our current university students, my NYU students, what is that minimum short intervention that is the most effective at changing, at lowering our anxiety levels? I don't know if you can get more practical than that, but my my research has been kind of driven by by this uh, history and story of my own, you know, relationship with with trying to make my brain work better and to decrease anxiety uh, that I denied for a long time in my own life. You know, one of the things that, that you talk about a lot and you demonstrate in this book and you're demonstrating even as we speak is brain plasticity. Yeah. There was always this idea when I was growing up that by the time, you know, you reach maybe about 18 or maybe 20, your brain was set in glue and from there on, there on it was downhill. Right. And, and, and that's a, a disturbing thought, really. <laughs> it is. So uh, talk about brain plasticity, which uh, continues up till this day. And I'm much, much older than 20 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> 
Yes, but you and I, well past our 20s, still have the wonderful capacity of brain plasticity. So brain plasticity is the ability of the, of the brain to change and grow, to modulate the circuits in our brain in response to the environment um, um, at any age. And there's two flavors of brain plasticity positive brain plasticity that everybody wants, and it includes the ability to, to learn new things, to learn new uh, uh, sports, to learn new languages uh, later in life. Uh, and there's also negative brain plasticity that can come most commonly with high levels of stress and or anxiety. And so those high levels of stress that uh, release a lot of stress hormone cortisol can literally not only shrink, but eventually kill particular brain areas um, that you do not want to be diminished. And that includes the hippocampus, critical for long-term memory, and the prefrontal cortex, critical for decision-making and focused attention. You know, one of the things that, that I thought was so powerful in this book was this idea of reframing. I think it's really mm. central to, yeah. to the, your discoveries here. So Absolutely. One, because... Um, in our, when humans evolved, you had to be alert for every sound and everything that harmed you because anything that could harm you would very likely kill you quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're still primed to be alert for any kind of danger, but danger doesn't kill us. What is, feels actually killing us is worrying about things right. we do not exactly. need to worry about. So talk about the, you know, the, the idea of taking, using the warning systems that are built into our body to not destroy us, but help make us stronger. Right, exactly. So um, I think it, it's, it's great to start with the basics, which you actually explained um, just right now very, very well, which is evolutionarily 2.5 million years ago, um, we evolved to um, uh, to have our anxiety, sorry, our anxiety evolved, uh, and that underlying physiological stress response evolved to protect us from those dangers. And so we needed to run away or to fight those dangers to survive. It was essential for our survival. Um, and uh, today, those same exact uh, anxiety and stress response physiological systems are deployed um, at every news cycle, at every time you look at social media, uh, every time you see the weather report sometimes, that could be very scary and anxiety provoking. And so the reason why nobody's out there saying, yeah, I feel so protected by my anxiety right now, is that <laughs> as a culture, right, nobody's saying that, um, as a culture, um, our, the volume on our anxiety is simply turned up way too high. And as you all know, you know, too much of anything, even a good thing, is bad. And there's too much anxiety, and we've lost that protective, that essential element. So step one of the book, and that's why I devoted the whole third part of the book as a toolbox to help people, give people tools to turn their anxiety down, the anxiety levels down. So no, you don't want to be uh, go into, you know, Mach 5 level anxiety for every weather report. You can say, okay, I, you know, um, this is a weather report. I'm going to get it every day, but I don't need to respond that way. How do you do that? Well, um, the number one tool for decreasing an anxiety response is deploying the natural relaxation part of our nervous system that we all have that nobody knows about. How can we all know about fight or flight part of our nervous system. And we don't know about the relaxation part of our nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. So um, how do you activate that? Because uh, everybody out there should be saying, oh, I didn't even know I had that. How do I, how do I get that working instead of my fight or flight, my fight or flight system? And the best way to activate that is by deep breathing. So what is it doing naturally? It's slowing your heart rate, slowing your breathing. It's actually shunting blood from your muscles to your digestion and reproductive organs. And the best way to kind of get the prime, the pump for that process is deep breathing. Um, it's no surprise that uh, monks thousands of years ago knew that that deep breathing was a great way to calm and ground people. 
they didn't know the term, you know, um, parasympathetic nervous system, but I'm telling you, that's what it's called. And um, it's such a simple, direct way to get yourself calmed down. It's not going to cure all of your anxieties, but all of us need that tool to pull it out of our pockets when something is just something hits us and, and we are we are starting to get anxious. Just breathing. I, in fact, I'll recommend something very specific. Box breathing is my favorite. It is inhaling on a four count, holding at the top for four counts exhaling on four counts and holding at the bottom for four counts. Practice that when you're not stressed, when you're not anxious, and you will see how quickly it can pull you down from, oh my God, what's going to happen to, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm grounded. Let's, let's look at this, uh, uh, with a new insight, with a new mindset. And so the second thing you asked me about was mindset. And um, that is so powerful. And in fact, I would say it is a gift or superpower for those of us that have anxiety because we have so many situations where we can use a shift of mindset to uh, change the way we look at the situation. And my first example is the title of my book, Good Anxiety. I bet you looked at that title twice because you said, what? Good anxiety? What, you, what could she be talking about? Yes. That is a mindset shift. And this is, I've indoctrinated myself and all my other readers into this mindset shift that anxiety is not something that you kick out the door. It is protective. It is helpful. It can provide you gifts. And it is part of our normal emotional uh, um, uh, kaleidoscope of emotions that every normal human being has. So um, very, very powerful. But that's the first example that I always turn to. You know, you talked about deep breathing. What that helps you to do is to, to understand that whatever you think is an immediate threat is not an immediate threat. Yes. It's something that you can think your way through. But right. if you're caught up in that immediate threat, you will make... A, one of my favorite writers is uh, the late Ruth Rendell, and she said that people have this tendency to say the first most hurtful thing that comes to mind. Oh. And, and, and that is true. And if you just think about that, you say, no, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's why when you were talking about anxiety, I, I was thinking of, you know, the idea of, of when you're driving along and somebody cuts you off, you know, if your first response is to do something kind of crazy, like run around and cut in front of them and then slow down again, yeah. it's just going to make things worse and it's going to make your life worse. By using the deep breathing, you can realize this is not an instant threat. And your best response is to just let that person go on their merry way. And right. you have places to go to and you will get there and it will be much better than sitting in the car in traffic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, I, I really like the uh, the idea of... One of the things you talk about is is the superpower of compassion. Mm. And for me, compassion is something that, that I've thought about a long time ago. I talked to an author named Karen Armstrong who wrote a book about the 12 steps of compassion. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'd like you to talk about that in terms of understanding the other people's perceptions and the other yeah. people's worries, which helps you reframe your own worries. Right, exactly. Well, um, actually, I'll tell that uh, gift or superpower in um, just a slightly different way framed on the very related concept of empathy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, empathy truly is a superpower that comes specifically from your particular version of anxiety. And let me explain what I mean by that. So in the process of writing this book, I realized that my oldest lasting anxiety was actually social anxiety. So I'm 
currently a professor and a speaker, so I don't have the uh, anxiety of speaking to, to large audiences. But I can tell you that for many, many, many years as a young girl, a high school student and college student, I was shy, I was awkward, I was the wallflower. And I so many times wanted to participate in my classes, uh, but I was scared of asking those questions. Why? Because I thought I was going to give the wrong answer and then be humiliated in front of everybody. And so I had years and years and years of that feeling. And it was only years later when I was writing this book that I realized that that had become my own superpower of teaching. It was a superpower of empathy because unconsciously from the very first time I stepped in front of the classroom, I always uh, arrived early. I stayed late uh, to answer those questions because I knew that they were scared of, of raising their hands just like I was. And so I wanted to make sure that everybody's questions got answered, you know, without, without fear of being wrong uh, in front of the whole class. And that, that turned out to be a true superpower in me. And that's just my form of anxiety. Everybody has that form of anxiety that they know so well, that they recognize so well. And so by turning that to the outside, you can turn that into your own superpower of empathy to help somebody with that same form of anxiety. You know, we tend to think of things as black and white, or we used to, but now we see things a lot more, the more common perception is, is on a spectrum. And anxiety definitely exists on a spectrum. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, I'm so glad you brought that point up because um, my book, Good Anxiety, was not written as a cure or a treatment for clinical levels of anxiety. That is that debilitating level of anxiety that you absolutely need to go see a medical professional for. This is the level of anxiety that you know prevents you from living your life normally. But as you just said, anxiety exists on a wide, wide spectrum. And um, this book is really to help the rest of us uh, that have lower levels of anxiety, what I call everyday anxiety, um, kind of cope. And how many people have anxiety? Well, even before the pandemic, um, the Wall Street Journal did a poll that showed that 90% of Americans raised their hands and said, yes, I experience anxiety. That was before the pandemic. Imagine how many people raise their hands today. So essentially all of us, all of us have anxiety. And um, the book uh, um, was really written as an invitation, an open invitation to, um, to share that journey, to start talking about it, to bring it out into the open and to provide, you know, really concrete uh, tools to help mitigate uh, the levels of anxiety that are, that are too high and help to turn that dial to the protective, to the uh, uh, informative, to the helpful level of anxiety. You know, you said informative, and I think that that's one of the things that really struck me as, mm. as a really useful perception is because anxiety is, you know, worry or stress. And on one hand, you can just get caught up in the worry or the stress and mm-hmm. and lose the message, the reason you're feeling this. And yes. that's, I think, the, it's so easy to, to get to worry about worrying instead of about what the things you should actually worry about. And when you realize that there are specific things that are causing you anxiety, you can apply, step back and say, oh, this is telling me something. Maybe I better put on the brakes either on the car because I'm going too close in front of me or on the behavior (laughs) that I'm engaging in. Exactly. That is a beautiful point. And, and um, I think there's worry about worry. There's also a lot of complaining about worry um, um, in, in our society with such high levels of, of anxiety. And, um, uh, you know, it really is true that one of the things I learned how to do is make friends with my own anxiety because I started to realize the very important messages, the wisdom coming from that warning signal of fear or worry. Um, uh, I talk to my students at NYU all the time about um, the that fear of exams. Yes, it is anxiety, but it's a warning system because those exams in your education are meaningful. 
they mean a lot to you. They want you, uh, you want to do very, very well. The stakes, the stakes are high here, not to make you more nervous, but it is a warning system. That is another one of the reframes um, that, that are so important. It, it is there, they, these feelings are never gonna go away. So sorry to burst your bubble. There's not gonna be a pill. There's not gonna be a technique to only let you live in the happy zone. Frankly, I would not want to be, I know the people that only live in the happy zone. That would be kind of a boring person. Um, your anxiety is there for a reason. It is telling you important things about what you value and what you should be paying attention to in your life. And looked at in that way, it's like, oh, okay, thank you. Thank you, worried stomach. I, I got your message. Now I'm going to go do something to take care of that. You, you, one of the things I think you said that's just really key is that <clears throat> anxiety, though we like, I think most people's idea of anxiety is that it's the result of the weight of the world upon you or the weight of all your duties or all of the things you have to do. And yeah. it's not part of something part of you, but anxiety is really something you generate. It's yes. a form of energy, and you mm -hmm. can either use it to burn yourself up, which is yes. the, the default response these days, or you can use it to, to fire yourself up and, and to, exactly. to figure out the, the, you know, the pathway through the problem you're perceiving rather than getting caught up in the perception of the problem. Yes, exactly. And the story I often tell that I tell in the, uh, in the book is that, you know, it's not that I, somebody, another interviewer said, so you must be the most chill person in the world, right? You know how to control your anxiety. It's like, no, I, I have anxiety. In fact, the best talks, the best interviews that I've ever given, I was a little nervous before them. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know what they were going to, the people were going to say, or it was a big audience and it was, you know, uh, um, uh, in, a, in a foreign land. That's the one I talk about in the book when I gave a talk at, Olympic Stadium in Moscow, Russia. And it was the biggest audience I'd ever had live. They were listening via a translator. So I thought, oh, great. They're going to, you know, they're not going to get my real you know, meaning and they're not even going to like it. Um, and right before I went, well, the day before I went on stage, I realized that when all the speakers came on in this venue. They had these little fireworks go on in the front of the stage. <laughs> like, oh my God, you're having fireworks on the stage? And I remember being backstage and they're putting the microphone on me and you're getting ready. And I'm like, okay, remember when there's gonna be fireworks when you walk out, just kind of uh, ignore that. And, and I was getting nervous and I said, you know what? I'm gonna try and give a talk worthy of fireworks. I don't know if I ever have given a talk worthy of actual fireworks, but that is what I'm going to do. So that was my reframe in the moment. And it, it, part of what drove me to that was that I, I'm really getting nervous. There's a lot of people out there. I don't know if they're going to understand my talk, but, uh, you can use that just as you said, to help fuel the energy to move forward, to be at your peak performance. You know, one of the things that's, that you talk about in this book, and it's really kind of revelatory to me, was the idea of emotional regulation, yeah. which you say is a very complex system, and it is. But the idea of being able to control your emotions, at, when you first say that, it seems almost like alien. Well, no. <laughs> emotions control me don't they but yeah, then right. when, <laughs> and then when once you say that phrase you think oh no that's a really bad idea talk about the complex system of emotional regulation yeah so i think the easiest way to understand this is that um anybody can learn to regulate their emotions in situations. Why? Because we all know what situations make us anxious. You know, it's not like, oh my God, that made me so anxious. I was such a surprise. You know, usually it's these things, oh my God, is a, you know, meeting with my boss or, or an interview that I have to do. And what I describe in the book are very straightforward tools to address um, three elements of uh, any situation, the before, the during and the after. 
And so what are those tools that you can do before the anxiety provoking event? And this is, of course, assuming you, you can predict that this is going to cause you some anxiety. Most of us know. And so what are those tools that you can use? Well, getting yourself into a calm emotional state sounds like a good idea before you go into that big meeting uh, with your boss. How do you do that? Well, we already talked about box breathing. Great tool to use. Just sitting there waiting in the waiting room can, can do that. The other really powerful thing to get yourself calm, in a good spirit, in, in um, high energy, low anxiety is moving your body. I'm not talking about doing a marathon. I'm talking about taking a power walk on the way to your meeting. Even 10 minutes of power walking has been shown to decrease anxiety levels. So two powerful techniques right there to get you into a good mood. Of course, preparation, making sure that you are ready for that will, will give you more self-confidence. But let's get into the meeting. Now we're in the meeting. It's like, oh, my God, now I'm, I'm really nervous. I was just a little bit nervous before, but now I'm really nervous. Well, pull out those same tools. The reason why breathing, breath work, is, especially that box breathing, is so powerful is that you can do it and nobody knows you're doing it. If you start standing up and doing jumping jacks, it's, it's a little bit more obvious. <laughs> but you can start you know, breath, box breathing even when that anxiety-provoking person can, um, is talking your box breathing, preparing yourself to give to give that answer. Um, but that's not the only thing. Of course, um, you can plan out. Um, usually what you also know are those points that make you nervous and the other points that, you know, are easier to talk about. Can you help direct the conversation to start off on a really good note, start off on things that you can agree with, or start off with your strongest points uh, in that meeting and then work your way up to uh, the more difficult points after you, you um, establish a, a good relationship early on. That's another very powerful uh, approach. Um, or you could, you know, if you don't need to talk about the most difficult things, then focus the whole meeting on the things that are, that, that are very good. Uh, lots of different options there. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to move to after the meeting. Here's what I often do after, before, what I often did after a meeting. Oh my God, why did you say that, Wendy? That was such a stupid thing to say. <laughs> oh my God, what is the matter with you? Okay, so that is a great example of what you do not want to do. Instead, a great way to help emotional regulation for that meeting and for future meetings is to be kinder but, but realistic. So what went well in that meeting? What didn't go well in that meeting? What are the three things that you can improve the next time you have that kind of meeting? Really trying to take it out of the personal. I, I used to love to attack myself and, and you know really put myself down for as much as I could. Stop doing that. Um, look at it from a coaching perspective. What do you have to learn? What did you do well? Three things each. Say that for each meeting and it it it, it makes that meeting more neutral or that anxiety provoking situation more neutral. You can apply that to any anxiety provoking situation that you have. And we talk about it in the book. I talk about it in the book. You know, uh, you talk in this book and you spoke in your other book too about the idea of flow. And I think yes. this is so important because uh, it's a, flow is a great way to a, Re, help yourself reframe and and take those steps back to yes. analyze a, a problem. So so talk about the import of flow and also too about um, this gets us into the idea of understanding your anxiety can help you improve your creativity. And, yes. and I'm not just talking about artistic creativity, which is great in, in and of itself, but you can be creative in a pragmatic manner in your everyday life. Oh, okay. I, I used to fix the dinner this way. Maybe I'll just serve it differently. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let me start with flow. So flow is that, um, wonderful state of everything just feels easy. It's like going so, so well, I don't even have to do anything. And, you know, everything, everything is, is, um, uh, going my way. And, um, the, the original description of flow, um, 
talked about how much skill you needed to have. You, you know, you've practiced for thousands and thousands of hours like Yo-Yo Ma. And then the one day at Carnegie Hall, you had this moment and you were flowing. And while that's beautiful, uh, I thought, well, that's depressing because I'm never going to have any flow at all because I haven't practiced anything nearly as long as Yo-Yo Ma and I'm not nearly as good as he is. And so I'm never going to have flow. And also, I know that anxiety is uh, a great way to stop flow because you can't flow when you are worried and scared and angry about things going on in your life. And so that is when I came up with a reframe of flow. And my reframe, reframe of flow is called microflow. And it, uh, I discovered this one day when um, I'd gone to a yoga class and um, uh, I did the whole yoga class. And then finally we got to the moment where I was doing the best, like my best move in yoga, which is Shavasana, the, the corpse pose where you just lay down on the ground. So I was laying down on the ground at the end of yoga class and I'm like, I am doing this so well. I am the best corpse in this whole classroom. I'm flowing in, in Shavasana. And it made me realize, actually, I had been working on this chapter on flow. It's like, this is flow. It, 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 it is just, um, it doesn't have to be, um, I declare, it doesn't have to be, you know, a performance on a world-class level only every once in a while when, when it's this height. It's like, I feel like I'm flowing. Everything, I'm doing this well. I, I, I feel fantastic. This is flow. And so it's... Um, it's a reappreciation, and I wanted to include this in this book on anxiety because so many of us, including myself with anxiety, it's like, ah, anxious again, that cuts off my flow. Well, I started to realize all the moments in my day where I did have micro flow, not only in Shavasana, that two minutes at the end of your yoga class, but every morning when I make my green smoothie that I love and it's absolutely delicious, ah, moment of flow, um, when I have um, a conversation that helps a student uh, in one of my classes uh, and that, that I know that I was able to give that advice because I've been doing this for 23 years. Ah, another moment of flow. Okay, it might have only lasted for, for a minute or so, that one piece of advice, but I could tell it worked. That is flow. And so this is something that everybody can benefit from. And in fact, people with anxiety might be able to benefit even more because there's something called the negative contrast effect. And that is that the highs feel higher when you have lows associated with them. And you can't appreciate the high unless you have the lows. Well, those of us with anxiety have those difficult emotional feelings of anxiety, which makes my micro flow in my yoga class, my micro flow of drinking my green smoothie in the morning in peace and appreciating my, my culinary skill at making this even sweeter. So that is my, my superpower of micro flow. Um, and then you, you asked about creativity, and um, I think that creativity is a really important part of the reframing that we've been talking about all along. How many ways can you approach an anxiety-provoking situation? Can you think about it in a different way? Can you relabel it from, oh, that's my anxiety-provoking conversation, to this is my opportunity to work on communication with my mother? for example. That might be a more inspiring or more specific way to think about it. And how did I come up with that? Uh, through my creativity. There are hundreds of ways to approach every problem. Can you practice looking at it in a way that makes it more of a challenge for yourself than a duty, more of uh, an, uh, a, a gift to get better at something than um, something to slog through. So that is becomes also a gift of anxiety because uh, those of us with anxiety-provoking situations a lot have many, many opportunities to reframe them with creativity and with purpose. You know, one of the things that struck me about this book that I like so much about it was that this is a book about neuroscience, 
about your brain, about mm -hmm. anxiety. These are all kind of abstract concepts. This book is relentlessly and delightfully pragmatic. These are, <laughs> these are, you talk about things that, you know, yahoos like me can do without, without any, without a neuroscience degree or, or, or you know, remembering the part of the brain that's doing the, the thinking, although it's nice to see all those parts described and talked about, yes. but yeah. by under having a, that basic understanding of the science, we can take this out and use these things every day in a way that helps us just get the regular stuff done and fight back the anxiety that just comes with having to deal with, you know, getting through this day. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That is the nicest compliment that I've heard about the book because our biggest, you know, desire was to make it very, very usable. You don't have to be a neuroscientist. You don't even have to like the brain. But we wanted to give you tools to address anxiety. And maybe learn just a little bit about the brain is is fine. But it was so it was inspired on my part by my understanding, my wanting to bring that understanding of the brain to people. So thank you for that lovely compliment. I really appreciate it. You know, when we read about the brain and about people who experiment on it and understand, I think one of the things I, I, I like too is your description of science. You talk mm. about science as a process of looking not for successes, but identifying mistakes. Because if you identify mm. your mistake, you won't keep making it again and again. Right. And, right. and when you re, uh, reframe that scientific perspective, it becomes pretty useful in an everyday world. It does. It does. I do absolutely believe that we learn much more from our mistakes than from our successes. Don't get me wrong. I love a good success in my life, but um, I've learned, clearly learned more from my mistakes. And that is nowhere clear, nowhere more obviously than in, in science. And so you test out a hypothesis and most of the time it's wrong. And sometimes, and, and that tells you where to go next or where not to go again. And that is a very valuable piece of information. And um, it, you know, it, it's all about looking at the information coming in. And that's another thing. I didn't really write about this in the book, but but all of these, all of these feelings, the emotions of anxiety, of fear, of worry, those are that's information coming into us. What are you gonna do with that information? It's not there to annoy us or to, you know, bring us down. It's there for us to use. How are you gonna use it? So it's really an opportunity. And and that really comes from my my, you know, over 30 years of, of being a scientist. I deal with information. Where is it gonna take me? What is it going to teach me? What are the lessons I'm going to learn? And in a sense, that is exactly how I'm treating the uh, emotion, the information coming in from those difficult emotions, uh, including anxiety. Well, that's so well said because when we're all getting tons of information in the human body, the human sensory system, the human sensory complex, it is designed to convey us information that is useful to us, or at least was when we evolved. Now with that we've evolved, our outer situation has changed, and we need to reframe how yes. we use all this information ignore the bad stuff and make use of the good stuff and don't worry about whether or not we, what our feelings are about it. I'll try to understand what it is and then decide how to act upon it. Now, one of the things you give us, what you give us tools in this book, talk about designing the surveys. Oh, well, the surveys were um, just the favorite tools that I found in my research from clinical practice, uh, because one of the things we want to, you know, before you start using tools willy nilly, we wanted to give people just a, a measure of where their anxiety is. Maybe you discover you're like me and you think, oh, I don't have very much anxiety. But when you answer those surveys, truthfully, you think, 
oh my God, look at how much anxiety I have. And that's, that is just a reality check. And so, uh, um, uh, sometimes, sometimes again, coming from my own experience, you don't have a realistic, uh, um, take on exactly how much anxiety you, you do have or how much you are masking it. And so those surveys are really designed to, um, give you, give you a way to, to measure that. Um, and, and then, uh, uh, Hopefully that will give you good motivation to try uh, one or or a bunch of the tools that we give you. You know, uh, the these tools are really important because they are, in a sense, things we all know and do parts of our life. Yeah. But to reframe them and and yeah. speak of the book as tools changes our perception of them greatly. For for example, um, you talk about this is something that is really important is uh the power of meditation yes absolutely so meditation is a powerful tool that we know from many studies um talk about emotional regulation wonderful way to help regulate our emotions from um, anxiety depression hostility levels to more calm and um there's so many uh good and bad, there are thousands of forms of meditation. And I know I've had my own struggles in finding the form of meditation that I will do regularly. And I searched for years about it. And I thought, oh, I found it. And then, you know, I dropped off, couldn't, couldn't really bring myself to do it regularly. And so um, it really does take a little bit uh, of a search. But uh, the one that I talk about in the book is the one that I came on, which is tea meditation that people don't, it's not as common. That, I love that idea. So explain that what that is. I, that's yeah. so great. So it is wonderful. And so here's what happened. Literally years before I'm trying different things. I try guided meditation. I try Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey who have great guided meditations, but it only worked for a little while. I tried the ah meditation. I tried to go to classes and they all worked for a little while, but, but nothing really stuck. And then I got to go to on vacation to Bali. So I'm in Bali. It's so beautiful. And I um, uh, get to meditate with this tea monk. I'm invited to meditate. There's a guest at the hotel. He is a tea monk. I didn't know what a tea monk was, but he gathered about five guests and he didn't say very much. And we all sat around in a circle and he proceeded to brew this delicious tea, gave it to us in these handmade bowls. We all drank this pretty big bowl of tea. And I thought, okay, that's it, right? Eight bowls later, we were done with the meditation. I drank eight bowls of tea and I loved every bowl of it because it was just, once you got into it, you realized there was a ritual. He brewed the tea. He poured the tea. He gave the tea out. We all drank together. We all gave the cups back and it started over. And, and somehow that ritual of there, there, it, it's going on its own and I'm just jumping on and adding my own meditation. And this is so wonderful to tell you how powerful it was for me. The day that I got back from that trip, I have done that tea meditation on my own in right here at the seat for the next six years. It's been six years since I did that every morning. I do it. It, 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 it went like it turned my difficult meditation into something that I do so easily. And yes, I love tea. Um, you could do it with coffee, coffee, but um, there's something about brewing that the ritual of the brewing and the seeping of the tea that fits so well into this into this process. Um, and yeah, I describe that in the book, and that is something that that has really helped. Talk about emotional regulation. It really helped me start my day every day. Um, in a wonderful, calming frame of mind. An important word you mentioned there was ritual, which yeah. is, I think, that the idea of doing something repetitively gives it increased power. And it does. Yes. And for meditation, I think the idea of sitting with your legs crossed is a great idea. There's many people who do that, but that's not the only way to do it. You could exactly. do it while you're walking every day. You could do it yeah. while you were playing the piano. Yeah. And I think that the idea of 
the ritual, if you repeat it and again and again, it helps you more every time until at some point you realize that it's become a part of your life. Talk about the import of ritual for you and the other yeah. things you do again and again. Yeah. So uh, that is so helpful and powerful in my life. And um, it is ritual. It is habit the habit system in the brain to bring a little bit more neuroscience in. We know the brain areas involved. Uh, they, uh, they help us form these incremental but very strong, long-lasting memories. The part of the brain called the basal ganglia is important for this. So my own rituals, so what I do every morning, I get up and the first thing that I do is I do my tea meditation. Okay, first I keep feed my cats and then I do my tea meditation. It goes on for uh, about 45 minutes. And then my next ritual is I work out. And um, even before the pandemic, I did video workouts. And so I, I go to the other side of this table and I work out right over there, which has an open space. And um, also great ritual. And then I reward myself with breakfast. So um I love food. I love the ritual of making and and enjoying my food. And so the first time I get to do this is at breakfast time when I make that famous green smoothie that that I uh, enjoy in a flowy kind of way. And um, uh, and those are the rituals that um, really seven days a week, unless I'm traveling and you know something weird happens, I'm really very very consistent uh, at doing. There's also finally uh, another thing that is so good for our brains is um, sleep and bedtime rituals, um, which uh, uh, can help our sleep, which will help our brains, which will help our longevity. Um, and uh, that is, you know, um, turning the TV off. I love Netflix as much as anybody else, but I turn it off and I make sure that I read a real book, no screens. And uh, my last thing that I discovered during the pandemic is I love listening to audiobooks. And um, I use particular books as kind of bedtime stories. I know the stories. I don't have to listen to them, but I just like it's like having a like a bedtime story told to me. So I read a real book and then I listen to this to make me go to sleep. These kind of bedtime stories. I've chosen my particular uh, audible books for that. And that has really uh, given me a regular sleep cycle that is so helpful. You know, eight, I've learned um, that eight hours is my sweet spot. Um, and uh, so I really try and stick to that as well. So those are my major rituals. The new book by Wendy Suzuki is Good Anxiety, Managing the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Thank you for joining me, Wendy. Thank you for having me, Rick. This is a really fun conversation. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.